My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand the 2003 Iraq war through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. Hi, Balder. Why are we speaking about this topic today? Why are we speaking about the Iraq war? Hello, Dario. Well, the obvious reason is that it's the it's a 20-year anniversary. Um, it happened in March 2003. And it was probably one of the worst most aggressive examples of the outcomes of the Western bubble that we're describing in this podcast. And as a result, it should not be forgotten as a hugely damaging um, action that was taken on our behalf and that was very much facilitated by the delusion that we live under. Unfortunately, it seems that we don't learn from the past and instead the Iraq war seems to become very rapidly ancient history certainly for your generation and that is a very dangerous observation because that means that that we are never going to learn the lessons that we should be learning from this and what are the facts the iraq war from 2003 to 2011 began on march 20th 2003 with the invasion of iraq by the united states-led coalition that overthrew the iraqi government of saddam hussein the power vacuum following Saddam's demise and mismanagement by the coalition provisional authority led to widespread civil war between Shias and Sunnis, as well as a lengthy insurgency against coalition forces. In 2014, the Islamic State launched a military offensive in northern Iraq, taking advantage of the vacuum left by the United States and declared a worldwide Islamic caliphate, leading to another military response from the United States and its allies. The United States based most of its rationale from the invasion on claims that Iraq had a weapons of mass destruction program and posed a threat to the United States and its allies. Additionally, some US officials accused Saddam of harboring and supporting Al-Qaeda. In 2004, however, the 9-11 Commission concluded there was no evidence of any relationship between Saddam's regime and the terrorist organization. No stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction or active development programs were ever found in Iraq. The Center for Public Integrity found that the Bush administration made a total of 935 false statements between 2001 and 2003 about Iraq's alleged threat to the United States. A public libraries of science medicine study concluded 460,000 excess deaths, including 132,000 violent deaths from the conflict. War crimes committed by the United States coalition include the deaths of civilians as a result of bombing and missile strikes that failed to take all feasible precautions with regards to civilian casualties, and the Abu Ghraib torture and prison abuse by U.S. Army personnel involving the detention of thousands of Iraqi men and women. In March 2013, the total cost of the Iraq war to date was estimated at 1.7 trillion U.S. dollars by the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The total cost of the war to the US economy will range from 3 trillion to 6 trillion US dollars, including interest rates by 2053. For example, Harvard's public finance expert Linda Balms has estimated that the long-term costs of providing disability compensation and medical care to US troops injured in the Iraq conflict would reach nearly 1 trillion US dollars over the next 40 years. What is the bubble? So when we're talking about the bubble, um, our listeners know that we like to start with uh, some history. Um, and I very specifically said that we're talking about the 2003 Iraq war in this episode. However, we can't understand the 2003 Iraq war without understanding the war against Iraq in the 1990s. In the 80s, Saddam Hussein was already around and the West was around as well. Um, what was their relationship like? Well, what is fascinating about this is that history shows a very changing type of relationship. In the early 80s, the relationship between the West and Iraq was hesitant, but it became bolstered, if you like, strengthened by events in Iran. The rival of Iraq, a neighboring country, with the 1979 revolution, 
um, Iran became the pariah of global affairs, not just, by the way, from the Western perspective, but also by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was horribly worried about Iran. And Iraq, as a natural rival, and Saddam Hussein very much as a more seen as a more secular regime, um, Saddam Hussein became a buffer against further Iranian aggression from a Western perspective. Iran hadn't committed any aggression. It had been an internal revolution that took taken place, but the West was incredibly worried about the potential of that Iranian Islamic revolution spreading, and Iraq and Saddam Hussein were seen as a buffer. So when Saddam Hussein invaded Iran in 1980, uh, relations were still relatively fragile, but soon, by 1982-1983, what you see is that the West is actively supporting the invasion against Iran, especially when it becomes clear that Iraq is not obviously winning the war. And so for most of the 80s after that, you see a West that is happily, financially, militarily, diplomatically supporting a regime that afterwards they claimed was inherently evil. Because then suddenly this government that you, that you just supported I mean, and you being the West here, um, suddenly this government turns on Kuwait and starts invading, you know, the small um, state on the, on the Arab Peninsula, very rich in oil. And that suddenly changed the dynamics. Suddenly Saddam Hussein was no longer just, you know, help against Iran, but suddenly he became a threat to interests. And what is fascinating there is that it was a misreading of Saddam Hussein. Um, when he thought that he could get away with it from a Western perspective. So this is in the context of the Iran-Iraq war. The Iran-Iraq war, sorry, the Iraq-Iran-Iraq was the one who invaded Iran. The Iraq-Iran war had been supported by the West, had not gone anywhere, and eight years later basically ended without any significant gains by either side, but in many ways you could claim that as a victory of Iran, because Iran was the defending party here. And Saddam Hussein was in huge financial trouble because of this. And he felt that he had fought a war partially on behalf of the West. And so he had to deal with internal finances that were all over the place. He, Iraq was hugely indebted despite its significant oil supplies. And he looked at Kuwait saying, there is my target to solve my financial problems. And where it went wrong is that he did not understand that Western's geopolitical interests had changed by that time, because by the late 80s, the West had started noticing, obviously, the collapse of the Soviet Union. It would still take a few years for it to actually occur, but it became clear that the Soviet Union was about to collapse by 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the West started preparing for a world where they were the only superpower left. And then when I say they, I mean particularly Washington and the United States. And with that in mind, the West looking towards the 1990s and the 21st century as a world that would be dominated by Western liberalism, they could no longer be seen to be supporting this dictator. Saddam Hussein didn't get the memo. In fact, there is an infamous or famous call that he had with later Vice President uh, Dick Cheney, where he believed that the United States basically gave him the green light, the go-ahead to invade Kuwait. The United States afterwards denied it, and it seems very plausible that the United States never actually wanted him to invade Kuwait because their reaction was very fast, very rapid, and very aggressively anti-Iraqi. But Saddam Hussein did not understand the geopolitical interest of the West changed. He invaded Kuwait to solve his financial problems, Straight away, the rest of the world, led by the United States, reacted with a first a defense force and then a force invading Iraq. But this is very interesting um, because you said the world led by the United States. And so this includes Soviet Union or Russia at this time, where, I mean, you, you still have a certain respect between the United States uh, and so Bush Sr., and Gorbachev, where, you know, they went through the proper means that the UN Charter has kind of provided the world with of security, UN Security Council resolutions um, passed. I mean, I think China abstained, but Russia and the United States agreed, okay, as the two superpowers of this world, the United States knowing that they had the upper hand, we cannot allow this. And with the UN Security Council resolution uh, 678, 
um, they basically gave this you know de deadline to to Saddam Hussein to to leave uh, Kuwait, and if he didn't, that um, resolution empowered states to use quote all means necessary end quote to force Iraq out of Kuwait. Um, so there you had you know really the world saying you violated the rules that we have given ourselves, the rules that we have agreed to follow, and therefore the world is now going to take action against you. And I would argue that China abstained based on principle more than anything else. But this is one case where ideology had nothing to do with it. It was exactly as you said, just the fact that the Westphalian rules were broken. And so the United Nations, with all major geopolitical powers, either supporting it or at least not protesting it, saying this cannot happen, you're not allowed to break the Westphalian rules made perfect sense and, and it was uncontroversial. This was not about anyone preferring the Kuwaiti regime over Saddam Hussein. No, it was Saddam Hussein invading. You're not allowed to invade, period. And we'll take action to make sure that the Westphalian rules are being upheld. Well, for the sake of the facts, Cuba and Yemen opposed. Um, but I mean, the, our listeners know well enough <laughs> the, the, the circumstances of this, um, of this opposition. And, and then how did the uh, basically response look like? So you had a US-led coalition then basically kicking Hussein out of, out of Kuwait, right? Yeah, so that was, I mean, this was the beginning of the CNN era. So we could watch it. I remember watching it live on TV. And initially this was called Operation Desert Shield, shielding Kuwait from Iraqi aggression because Iraq invaded. And Kuwait, there was nothing that Kuwait could do initially, but very quickly, very rapidly, the international coalition, obviously dominated by the United States, pushed back, pushed the Iraqis out of Kuwaiti territory. But then it didn't stop there. Then they just said, okay, look, this is actually a problem. Um, Saddam Hussein, why did you think you could even you know, try this in the first place? We cannot rely on you to be a good upstanding member of the Westphalian reality um, and therefore we cannot just simply protect the Kuwaiti borders we're going to enter Iraq and we're going to put extra pressure on you to make sure that you won't do this again and that turned then Operation Desert Shield into Operation Desert Storm. But Bush senior did not get rid of Saddam Hussein they decided for very good reasons you know that reasons that we would learn then with the with the second Iraq war, that uh, Saddam Hussein should stay in power and that you simply wanted to weaken him and send a proper message, you cannot violate Westphalian rules. A proper message with full UN support and a proper message in the sense of understanding that Saddam Hussein was still the Westphalian leader of the Iraqi territory understanding that overthrowing him, which would have been extremely easy, militarily the war had been won, the Iraqi forces had been defeated. Uh, about 60 miles, if I'm correct, uh, in front of Baghdad, George H. Bush gave the order to stop advancing, not out of any military concern, not out of any diplomatic concern, but simply out of the recognition that Saddam Hussein was still the proper Westphalian recognized leader of the country, and that um, if you got rid of Saddam Hussein, there would be a horrible political power void vacuum that would lead to all kinds of unforeseen and complex consequences. And keep in mind here that George H. Bush, Bush, Bush Sr., if you like, was a very knowledgeable expert on international relations. He had been director of the CIA, he had been vice president, he was someone who knew what he was doing. However, there was one group of people that didn't necessarily like that, that were annoyed by this. And this group, when you, you've taught me about them at university, the neoconservatives. And what about them makes them such warmongers? Why, why were they annoyed at this? So the neoconservative movement students originally we're talking about the 50s, uh, 60s, Leo Strauss from Leo Strauss, a not very well-known, by the way, uh, academic in Chicago. They learned that the West, and especially the United States, had this exceptional position in global affairs, 
that they had figured out the magic formula for humanity and that everything needed to be done to make sure that the rest of the world would not only respect US power, but would turn into the United States, would start copying this exceptional model. And in many ways, the neoconservative movement with that kind of ideology in mind became sort of the most militant version of the Western bubble, if you like. They became the ones who very aggressively believed that it was up to the United States to turn the rest of the world capitalist, democratic, liberal. And they were furious that George H. Bush decided not to overthrow Saddam Hussein because they thought this is our chance to start a vibrant new democracy in the Middle East. Militarily, the job is done. Why would you stop at this moment? Strauss, Leo Strauss told us that we should use these moments to project American power and to turn the rest of the world into a version of ourselves. Unfortunately for them, they just didn't have the political clout at the time because they were relatively junior. Exactly. They were not very influential. However, if we fast forward 10 years, and now we're talking about Bush Jr., suddenly these neoconservatives were a lot more influential. Uh, they dominated the George W. Bush administration. George W. Bush, unlike his father, not a intellectual, uh, not someone particularly knowledgeable on global affairs, and not with any of the career that his father had had, right? So not, not the trajectory that told him about foreign policy. And so George W. Bush was very susceptible to the advisors around him. Who were those advisors? Those same neoconservatives that had been junior under George H. Bush, who'd now become Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense, um, had become main, main advisors. We're talking about people like Wolfowitz, Crystal, um, Rumsfeld to a certain extent. I wouldn't call Cheney a neoconservative, but Cheney was certainly sympathetic to the neoconservative cause. Main, main advisors to George W. Bush, main policymakers were neoconservative, were now in charge in 2001, 2002, and crucially for today's topic, 2003. And during this time, during the Bush uh, Jr. administration, you have 9-11 take place, the first time since the Second World War that you know, the United States was attacked, and also, but also the first time that they were attacked on the mainland. This huge feeling of insecurity, and you have this response of the war on terror. And now you have you know, a bunch of neoconservatives in there, and you already mentioned one of them, um, Donald Rumsfeld, whom I stumbled upon during the research for this episode and found a memo that was circulating in November of 2001 that was written by him, where he basically talked about what can we do about Iraq and how could we start an Iraq war? Out of what motivation? And, you know, the, the three things he lists is, ooh, Saddam Hussein moves against the Kurds in the north, the United States discovers Saddam's connection to September 11 attacks or the anthrax attacks, or lastly, a dispute over weapons of mass destruction uh, inspections. And then with the subcategory of already start thinking about inspection demands we can pull against them. So there was clearly a desire to go to war with Iraq despite Iraq having done nothing. You know, after it seems like that message of Bush Sr. worked. Iraq wasn't attacking any neighbors uh, around them. And as, as I read on the fact sheet, Iraq also wasn't involved in the 9-11 attacks. None of the arguments that Rumsfeld wanted to use against Iraq as an excuse to invade were in any way valid. And think about that for a second. These are American foreign policymakers who do not have any practical excuse to invade Iraq, but desperately want to do so. Now, there are two explanations for that. One is the simplistic and essentially wrong explanation of, oh, they, they just care about oil and money. Um, yes, oil played a part in Iraq that made Iraq relevant to the United States, but that is not what drove those neoconservatives. Those neoconservatives were drawn into this conflict with Iraq because they genuinely believed that they could start the seeds of democratic liberalism in the Middle East by overthrowing Saddam Hussein. So you have all these trumped up reasons, you have all these lies um, floating around, you know, being brought up by the government in the United States and by the government in the United Kingdom. Why did people then fall for this? 
and I mean, I'm asking this question because we're talking within the category, what is the bubble? But basically, what in the Western bubble, what in the Western bias made people blind to these lies? One thing to remember in 2023 is that this was only, and I say only uh, without quotation marks here, only two years after 9-11, the United States and the world, the Western world certainly, were still traumatized by the events of the 9th of September 2001. That trauma was still very much alive in 2003, and the neoconservatives very happily milked that trauma by repeatedly somehow connecting Saddam Hussein to terrorism, somehow connecting Saddam Hussein to Al-Qaeda, somehow playing with the emotions of the traumatized American public. But much more importantly, they kept on repeating that Saddam Hussein was an evil dictator. And when we, in a liberal democracy, in a Western bubble, hear dictator, automatically we think, oh, well, then surely it's a good thing to do something against that person. We do not like dictators. We as a democracy have a duty to protect democracy and freedom across the world. The Iraqi people aren't free. So let's actually uh, get rid of this guy. And then the, the Iraqi people can choose for themselves what kind of government they want to establish. And the neoconservatives were very good at hitting the right note and thereby creating a sense of legitimacy, at least within the United States in favor of this invasion, which was a purely manufactured invasion, a purely voluntary, aggressive war against a country that had not been a threat in recent times to the United States, that had not committed any of the acts that they were being accused of, and um, that in no way was responsible for any of the deeds related to 9-11. And when we speak about a Western bubble here, I mean, we're, we're mostly talking about the United States and the United Kingdom because they were very big players in the West that were opposed to this. So Germany and France, you know, were clearly not part of this. And when we talk about this coalition that uh, invaded, we have made fun as a, as maybe a difficult expression, but we have kind of made fun of this in the past where you had a bunch of countries involved, many countries involved, However, their involvement was purely out of a favor to the United States and it was not real involvement. And the example we used uh, in one of the prior episodes was Iceland. It had sent two troops, uh, two uh, explosive officers. Um, and you know that there were a bunch of other countries that sent anything between 100, um, 100 and 300 troops. I mean, we we'll just go through the list. Tonga sent 55 and North Macedonia sent 77. And the list goes on. So this wasn't really an overall Western project. This was very much a United States, United Kingdom project, getting some others on board, but other players in the West weren't involved. And that was necessary from a diplomatic perspective for the United States to pretend, and it was pure pretense, that it was a coalition of the willing, as they called it, right? And they desperately tried to bribe, I mean, bribe in many different ways, other governments to basically put their name on the list. So obviously the United States doesn't care about two troops from Iceland. They care about Iceland being part of their coalition. And that was necessary because the world understood in 2003 that this was a completely manufactured invasion, that it had nothing to do with self-defense, had nothing to do with 9-11, and had nothing to do with Saddam Hussein being a threat to the international community. It was neoconservatives who wanted their little pet project that hadn't been realized 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier, now to be realized under George W. Bush. And there, were, there was very little um, doubt about this even at the time. The only thing that kept the debate going was this sense of this Western liberalism being automatically entitled to overthrow an authoritarian regime. So even those who were skeptical would say, yeah, but Saddam Hussein is a horrible dictator. And because he's a horrible dictator, I'm not really going to lose a minute's sleep over the United States getting rid of him. You know, that's an of, of course a hugely myopic perspective, but it's 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 clearly the inherent bias that we all have for believing that somehow our sense of moral superiority in a liberal democratic model means that we can then spread our freedom across the world with force if necessary. 
but they were also the anti-Iraq war protests. I do want to mention those, uh, where I think at, at a peak there were 36 million people protesting, um, you know, on the same day in a bunch of different countries. So not everyone fell as a victim to this, something that I think society has lost uh, nowadays, or at least with other Western excursions into other countries. So, so far we've only looked at politicians and the overall society. However, and I would like to believe that this, uh, you know, that intellectuals carry a weight in the in debates. Intellectuals at that time were also hugely in favor of this. And in, in order to analyze this a little bit better, we're going to uh, present you a two-minute fragment from a Iraq war debate between Christopher Hitchens and George Galloway in 2005. Listen closely. An impression, I think, uh, ladies and gentlemen, has been allowed to form and perhaps even to coagulate and to congeal that it is only those of us who support the regime change, uh, the revolutionary change in Iraq, who have any explaining to do. Um, I think that that assumption needs to be counted from the very beginning. Uh, if you examine the record of the so-called anti-war movement in this country and imagine what would have happened had its council been listened to over the last 15 and more years, you would have a world in which the following would be the case. Saddam Hussein would be the owner and occupier of Kuwait. He would have succeeded in the annexation, not merely the invasion, but the abolition of an Arab and Muslim state that was a member of the Arab League and of the United Nations. And with these resources, as we now know, because he lost that war, he was attempting to equip himself with the most terrifying arsenal that it was possible for him to lay his hands on. That's one consequence of anti-war politics. That's what would have happened. In the meanwhile, Slobodan Milosevic would have made Bosnia part of a greater Serbia, and Kosovo would have been ethnically cleansed and also annexed. Uh, the Taliban would be still in power in Afghanistan if the anti-war movement had been listened to, and Al-Qaeda would still be their guests. And Saddam Hussein, with his crime family, would still be privately holding ownership over a terrorized people in a state that's been most aptly, aptly described as a concentration camp above ground and a mass grave underneath it. Now, if I had that record politically, I would be extremely modest. I wouldn't be demanding explanations from those of us who said it's about time that we stop this continual capitulation to dictatorship, to racism, to aggression, and to totalitarian ideology that we will not allow to be repeated in Iraq, the failures in Rwanda and in Bosnia and in Afghanistan and elsewhere. So before we analyze what he said, um, who is Christopher Hitchens? Do, do I need to know who that is? I mean, maybe for our listeners, summarize very quickly why, he's so, why he was so influential. Well, you, you should know who he is because we mentioned him in the episode on Gandhi. Christopher Hitchens was a very influential political commentator, journalist, uh, author. He wrote many books on international affairs, on Western culture as well, on politics. Uh, he wrote for the New Statesman and he wrote for Vanity Fair. And he became one of the main intellectual voices justifying the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And he had already for a couple of years before that been advocating for an aggressive foreign policy against Saddam Hussein and even the overthrowing of Saddam Hussein, even before 9-11. So his words weren't out of a traumatized mind because of what happened on in during 9-11. He actually had a conviction that Saddam Hussein was a danger to the Western liberal world order. And he was a serious thinker. Despite him being absolutely wrong on this issue, he is someone who had a good understanding of the world. And that meant that his words carried meaning in political circles, in media circles, when the neoconservatives were desperate to find an excuse to get rid of Saddam Hussein. So when he then compares Rwanda to Bosnia, um, to Iraq, you know, and basically telling the anti-war movement that if you were in charge, if you were in power, countless genocides would have been committed and people would be dying everywhere and suffering is everywhere. What's, I mean, it's, it's obvious, I, I would want to believe, but what's problematic with the statement? So what he does here is he conflates lots of different 
dynamics, right? The reason why the international community reacted with such a consensus against the invasion of Kuwait was because the Westphalian rules were broken. That's it. It wasn't about ideology. It wasn't about anything else. It wasn't about the international community saying Saddam Hussein is an evil guy. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that both the Soviet Union and the United States supported Saddam Hussein. It was simply Saddam Hussein in the 1990s. You're not allowed to invade another country anymore. The Cold War is over. It's done now. And to conflate that with a very different scenario in Kosovo and, and the former uh, Yugoslav republics, and then uh, to conflate that with the invasion of 2003 is way um, below what Christopher Hitchens is intellectually capable of. And it shows something about his conviction, his, his Western bubble mind, if you like, that he puts it all together, even though somewhere deep down inside he must know that it doesn't make any rational or intellectual sense what he's saying, but he just desperately wants to find a reason to get rid of Saddam Hussein and to say, the fact that we did this is right, and if you disagree with getting rid of Saddam Hussein, you somehow allow a world where authoritarian dictators commit genocide onto everyone else. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So when we're now talking about the problem and the damages that all of this has caused, I mean, let's start with politicians lying, populations falling for it, and intellectuals uh, such as Hitchens really supporting that machine. What's the problem of, of that, of politicians lying, intellectuals supporting them, and the population falling for it? Well, it's funny that you're saying that, because that's exactly what Leo Strauss the academic that we mentioned before, that it's at, at the foundation of the neoconservative movement, told his students, look, the idea here was um, neoconservatives, you need to do whatever is necessary to make the United States strong, to keep the United States strong, and to project liberal democratic values around the world. And if you need to lie to the general public, lie to the general public, it's okay. The problem, of course, with doing that is that it leads to really arbitrary and generally bad foreign policy making because there's no longer any sense of accountability. There's no longer, longer any sense of the people within your country being able to judge what is right and what is wrong. Instead, it is uh, any specific ideological movements that may be flavor of the day making very destructive choices that have an impact on potentially millions of people around the world. Let's talk about these destructive choices then. Um, I read out on the fact sheet that approximately half a million people died. That's a lot of people dead over a few lies. Yeah, so here's the thing when you talk about Iraq and Saddam Hussein. I don't know, nobody knows what Iraq would have looked like if the invasion hadn't happened. But there are very few reasonable scenarios that would have predicted half a million civilians dying in the following five, 10 years. There are lots of scenarios that could have, uh, that, that would have predicted some kind of internal revolution against Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein wasn't that strongly in power anymore. There are loads of scenarios of what have, could have happened to Iraq, but the idea that half a million people would have died anyway is of course insane. The invasion of Iraq caused the, the deaths of 500,000 people, give or take, and that was all because of a choice made by the White House in 2002-2003. That is something that can never be erased from history. That is a, a voluntary war against a country that is half the globe away from you, that hasn't actually committed any acts of aggression against you. This is the responsibility that US foreign policymakers and US intellectuals and UK intellectuals or intellectuals elsewhere have to live with. And we're looking at Iraq today. I mean, there were a lot of articles looking at Iraq nowadays um, in the past few weeks, simply because of the 20 year anniversary. And it's a country, you know, very unstable. We already talked about uh, the rise of ISIS, but first you had a civil war between the Sunni and the Shia. Then you, you know, you, you just leave that country um, up to itself, then you have a 
terrorist group rising. I mean, given that Bush kind of started this invasion in the name of the war on terror, if anything, it had the opposite effect on this. Yeah, so even if you don't want to take a moral approach, even if you don't want to talk about the human destruction that took place as of the, part of the invasion of Iraq, then at the very minimum, you need to look at whether the United States actually achieved any of its objectives. The United States, neoconservatives, wanted to project power onto the Middle East. As a, as a result of the invasion, did the United States become more powerful in the Middle East? No, the opposite. ISIS became a powerful enemy of the United States because of this power void within um, Iraq. Did the United States start the seeds of a flourishing democracy in the Middle East? No, Iraq is by no means a flourishing democracy. Did the United States somehow strengthen its reputation as a white knight protecting freedom around the world? No, the opposite. The United States suffered diplomatically enormously. Its reputation, and not just of the United States, but of the Western general, collapsed by 2006-2007. By 2008, when Barack Obama was elected president, the world was sick and tired of Western interference in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and elsewhere. None of the goals that the United States set out to achieve were realized. And the reason was because you should never, ever start a voluntary aggressive war. You do not control the dynamics of that war and you cannot achieve any rational means, even if you don't care about human lives being lost as part of that war. So overall, Western reputation was destroyed. Well, not well, see, that's already a problem. It wasn't necessarily destroyed. It was harmed. But if you compare um, the US invasion of Iraq with how Russia is currently being looked at and called with its, with exactly the same, you know, and like, I mean, we, we, we talked about this in previous episodes, with an unprovoked, you know, invasion of another country um, going against the sense of the of the UN Charter. So Russia is now portrayed as this imperial power, you know, just hungry for controlling other other territories. I don't see the same with regards to the United States as a response to the Iraq war. So there are two ways in which you can explain this, because the difference is completely obvious for anyone who's paying attention. And uh, even though, of course, by the way, there are differences in the motivations behind invading Iraq compared to invading Ukraine, the, the two facts remain that both were voluntary wars of aggression against another sovereign nation. Um, there are two ways in which you can explain this. The first is say, well, yes, but that is because we understand that there is actually something inherently better about a democratic liberal government and that they have a moral right to interfere with non democratic nations because this is free people freeing other people who are oppressed that is sort of the western bubble excuse for this right and russia very much isn't that liberal democracy therefore we can judge them more harshly for what they're doing because it's simply an evil dictator in the kremlin i would argue that the real reason is that the west is first of all internally very full of itself and is incapable of critically looking at itself. It's incapable of analyzing its own destructive behavior. And secondly, it's very, very good at marketing. The West is very, very good at globally telling, selling a story, selling a fairy tale, a narrative about we are doing this for the well-being of humanity as a whole. And it's a very attractive narrative if you believe in this liberal democratic model. I would love to believe that my country, the Netherlands, uh, or the country that I live in, Spain, that these are just forces for good in the world, because I love the democratic system that we live in. But if you take a step backwards, you have to puncture through that fairy tale, and you have to understand that there's actually very little difference between the United States invading Iraq and Russia invading Ukraine. Both are horrendous acts of destruction. And if you don't care about you know, the moral reasons, um, the adverse effect has had on the war on terror, 
or Western reputation being lost. Ultimately, you care about money. Um, I, I'm pretty sure so most people would care about money. And there are discussions currently going on in the United States about the financial support the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. Why are we sending money to Ukraine? This is so much money. We could spend this better at home. Well, if we look at the $3 trillion, um, I'm sure that our U.S. audience, that all of them would have many, many thoughts and ideas where that money could be spent on currently. I don't know, maybe education, healthcare, infrastructure, any of the above. Um, so that is one of those damages as well, is that an enormous amount of money was lost here. Well, and that's what makes it even more surprising and in many ways disappointing that there is no more of a recollection, a memory about what happened in 2003, because these are consequences right now. You That money that you're talking about, that investment in infrastructure, in healthcare, that didn't take place, instead... The United States wasted it on a destructive war that had no tangible benefits to the U.S. public should now lead to U.S. taxpayers being much more critical of whatever their own government does, right? If you care just about your own country, say, look, I'm an American. I do not care about the rest of the world. I care about my society, USA. Then surely you need to be deeply concerned about the idea of your government wasting these enormous amounts on foreign intervention and yet there is very very little awareness and very very little debate about this and more and more it seems as if we just take it as okay it's a sunk cost it happens let's move on in in some ways by the way it seems to me that u.s policymakers haven't forgotten the enormous costs associated with iraq and they're now desperately trying to make russia pay the same price right um moving it away from this like you know, money uh, back to the conceptual level. One of the other damages is that with this, the West set a precedent for, you know, one could say Russia invading um, invading Ukraine because this is this is part of the the Russian narrative. Obviously, is that you you have NATO intervention in Bosnia, uh, Libya, Syria, Iraq. The the list goes on. With this, they have set a precedent, and. You know, now you see Russia and others taking on taking on the narrative. I'm sure. I mean, we already had our episode on on the West and Taiwan. That if China were to were to make a move on on Taiwan, you know, you could quote that precedent that the West has set. And and China has much more of a claim over Taiwan than the United States ever did over Iraq, for obvious reasons. Uh, the idea here that the West as being the first and foremost geopolitical power over the past you know, 30 years at least, acting like this sets a precedent is a perfectly reasonable, logical type of analysis. But when it is mentioned, and once in a while people do mention it, certainly within the context of Ukraine, maybe the future within the context of Taiwan, um, the reaction against it is, oh, how dare you blame the West for this? Why does it always have to be the West that is being blamed? This was Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. As if it is either or, right? As if it's black or white. So nobody should claim that the only reason why Russia is invading uh, Ukraine is because of the invasion of Iraq. Of course not. But it does create an international environment in which this becomes more possible. The United Nations can be less outraged towards Ukraine because of this behavior by the West previously. And if you genuinely care about some sense of international justice or international order, then the first and foremost responsibility you have is to behave responsibly yourself. The West has not behaved responsibly, therefore making it much easier for a country like Russia to aggressively invade a neighboring nation. And what now? So when we're looking into the future, um, and we've already made that comparison between the United States invading Iraq and Russia invading Ukraine, um, when we talk about the, the similarities, another fact that I stumbled upon uh, in my research is that some of the criticism of the United States uh, during during the invasion of Iraq was that they didn't use enough troops and that they the 150,000 troops that they had used to to invade Iraq 
um, would, wouldn't be nearly enough to control the territory and properly implement their plans. They would have needed 500,000 troops for, to do this. And this reminds me uh, very much of the analysis a lot of people had before Russia invaded Ukraine, where um, people said, oh, you can't invade Ukraine and control the territory with 150,000 soldiers. You need at least half a million soldiers. Until a couple of weeks before the actual invasion of Ukraine, I was convinced that uh, Russia wouldn't do it, or at least I thought it was very unlikely that Russia would invade Ukraine, despite claims by, for example, the White House that they were going to, because of exactly this reason. And so there is really interesting parallels here between a Kremlin that is ideologically blinded to reality and therefore makes really bad decisions that in the end hurt Russia, because there's no doubt, of course, the invasion has hurt Ukraine first and foremost. Ukraine are the uh, the original victims of the invasion, obviously, but there's no doubt that Russia is weaker now, a year after the invasion of Ukraine, because of this ideological approach to Russia's, Russia's foreign policy, which is extremely similar to an ideological approach by the United States in 2003, which then damaged United States power and United States influence around the world, where it was also completely obvious that militarily they were making a mistake. Not in terms of initially defeating the Iraqi army, that was easy, that happened in a few months' time. But afterwards, the violence in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere led to very foreseeable consequences that were overwhelmed by a sense of ideological urgency. And this is a conversation that we need to have more. And too often we discuss the war in Iraq in terms of, oh, it was just Dick Cheney who wanted to become rich, Vice President Dick Cheney under George W. Bush, who had shares in Halliburton and other companies that made money out of the Iraq war. We simplified into terms of, oh, it is simply um, uh, some corrupt politicians, some evil politicians doing evil or corrupt stuff. Instead of understanding it, which is incredibly important for the future, from a perspective of, no, this was an ideological war. It was a war that came out of our sense of moral superiority, with the neoconservatives being the hardcore militants of a society that we all live in. And we need to have a conversation how that was possible. Just like if I were Russian, I would like to have a conversation about, hang on, okay, we know that Putin has some corrupt aspects to his regime. We, uh, many corrupt aspects, many people call him a thug. Okay, fine. We also know that he's probably a believer in Russian imperialism, that it's not just all an act. We know that they put a narrative forward that Russia has some kind of claim towards its sphere of influence, including Ukraine, Georgia, and its surroundings. How are we as a Russian society contributing to that environment? And how do we make it easier for the Kremlin to engage in such a damaging war? That conversation would make a lot of sense from a Russian perspective. And that conversation is absolutely essential from a Western perspective. What did we do as a normal, decent Western liberal society to facilitate a war in Iraq that cost the lives of half a million people? This is along the lines when we called for a Bursting the Chinese Bubble podcast. Um, so now we're reaching out to our Russian colleagues. Um, <laughs> please start a Bursting the Russian Bubble podcast. So at the beginning of this podcast, you said... Um, we, we need to learn our lessons from the 2003 Iraq war. Um, however, I don't th personally don't believe that's a very likely scenario, um, but our listeners do know that we, we like to put up some scenarios. So what's the likely scenario here? Are we going to continue to make the same mistakes um, as we did in Libya, in Syria um, and elsewhere? Yes, with, unfortunately the answer to that would be yes. However, there's a small caveat there, namely that the West is rapidly losing its abilities to do so. The West is losing power, it's losing influence. And something like an invasion of Iraq is very unlikely to happen simply because the United States doesn't have that capacity anymore, doesn't have that role in global affairs. But the fact that we don't have more serious conversations about these horrendous acts that our societies are responsible for, 
makes me suspect that the most likely scenario is that we'll continue displaying the same type of destructive behavior at a foreign policy level, maybe not at the same scale because of that lack of power that we have nowadays. It is very, very important for this though that, that the conversation about Iraq is not simply one about corrupt officials or corrupt governments or anything like that, or just some, you know, just Dick Cheney or Donald Rumsfeld doing their thing. The conversation that we should be having but that we're not having, and therefore we're likely to make the same mistakes in the future, the conversation we should be having is how does our own behavior of you, me, our listeners, our own sense of superiority when it comes to the democratic and liberal model contribute to an environment where foreign policy can be like this? This seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the Iraq war. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I chose a famous quote by Edward Said, who I quoted before in some episode long ago. And it's relatively long. Here it goes. Every single empire in its official discourse has said that it is not like all the others, that its circumstances are special, that it has a mission to enlighten, civilize, bring order and democracy, and that it uses force only as a last resort. And, sadder still, there is always a chorus of willing intellectuals to say calming words about benign or altruistic empires, as if one shouldn't trust the evidence of one's eyes watching the destruction and the misery and death brought by the latest civilizing mission. Mm -hmm.